0: Welcome to the Physics Buzz Podcast, I'm Calla Cofield. Microwave lasers, also known as masers, are now available at room temperature. This is a breakthrough that's been 60 years in the making, and the final push came just a few weeks ago by this guy.
1: Well, um, hello. My name is Mark Oxborough. I am a physicist at the National Physical Laboratory in Teddington, near London, in the United Kingdom.
0: Now, a typical laser is a means of amplifying optical light, but a maser amplifies microwave light.
1: So if one likes, one can call a maser a microwave laser, or one could call a laser an optical maser.
0: So what does this mean that masers can operate at room temperature? Well, it mostly means that masers are going to be easier to use. Current maser technologies are all cryogenic. They can only be operated when they're cooled to nearly absolute zero. So for every maser, you also have to have a big, expensive, clunky refrigeration system.
1: So I was sick of doing helium transfers and asking for cash to buy liquid helium or um, requesting Um, budgets to buy expensive refrigerators to cool things. So I wanted to get rid of refrigerators in in my device and work at room temperature because it would be cheaper and it would be more fun.
0: Dr. Oxborough has built a maser before, but mostly in his work he just uses them. Because masers amplify a signal, they can be used as a kind of measurement device because they can pick up a weak signal that you're trying to measure and make it stronger. And in science, there are plenty of applications for sensors and detectors and measuring devices.
1: For example, in um, scanners used to detect molecules in a a tissue sample from a patient, and perhaps used in in radar systems for for detecting objects um, at an airport or over the, the horizon. So in various kind of scanning um, systems where one needs a very sensitive detector of something, then I, I think that these, uh, this new maser gadget may have a niche of advantageousness in, in certain sensing applications.
0: But masers can also be used in communications, sending signals that contain information. And in fact, masers are already used as part of the longest communication network in the solar system.
1: If one is trying to communicate um, across the solar system, then one needs a very good telephone network. NASA at the moment have such a telephone network. Um, It's called the Deep Space Network. And in order to receive the very faint signals that are coming back from, well, from Mars at the moment, one needs very good low noise amplifiers connected to very high gain antennae, very large dish antennae. And the amplifiers that NASA use, well, um, NASA use um, cryogenic semiconducting amplifiers, but um, still today, um, they they still have available um, maser amplifiers, cryogenic ruby maser amplifiers, which have a very low noise temperature, they're very quiet, and are very good for receiving very weak signals.
0: So in this case, even the optical lasers that NASA uses are cryogenic, meaning they too have to be cooled to nearly absolute zero. Masers, again, offer very low noise signals, so...
1: So the advantage of the amplifier that that we have produced today is that it it may enable NASA or the European Space Agency or someone else to install a very low noise amplifier suitable for long-distance communication without the hassle of refrigeration.
0: The very first masers were built around the same time as the first lasers. That was 60 years ago. There has been a lot of theoretical work published about how to build a room temperature maser. But there's also been a lot of pessimism about whether or not it was possible. And it seems that efforts to try to build one were actually just few and far between. And that might make sense because for a working physicist like Dr. Oxborough, this was a relatively high-risk experiment.
1: After reading, you know, 300 papers and after assessing the state of the art, I, together with my colleagues at Imperial College in London, thought that it was doable, despite the pessimism that one can read in certain papers in the literature. When one did the math and one worked out what the what the threshold equation was and 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 how much power one needed to get this to work, it just didn't seem that difficult. And so we believed the maths ultimately we, we had faith in the mathematics, and we just kind of ignored some of the pessimism in in certain papers.
0: well so what were the risks then for you
1: well the the, the risks were <laughs> that i I would spend a lot of time and a little bit of money, but mostly time, and produce a device that just didn't work at all.
0: Every laser, whether it's optical or microwave, has a few basic components. First, you need a signal. That's the thing you want to amplify. Next, you need a medium. This medium is going to essentially create copies of your signal, which is going to start amplifying it. So the signal and the medium have a special relationship, because depending on what kind of signal you're trying to amplify, not just any medium will work. A medium that works for an optical laser won't necessarily work for a microwave laser. And so far, the only materials that scientists have found that will work as a medium for a maser need to be cooled to almost absolute zero. Uh, This has to do with the stability of the atoms of the material. The cool temperature sort of calms things down, makes it more stable. So anyway, it took decades for scientists to come up with ideas for a medium that would work for a room temperature maser. A paper published by three Japanese physicists in 2002 suggested using an organic molecule called pentacene, So Dr. Oxborough started looking around to see if he could get his hands on pentacene. He called up colleagues and talked to people in chemistry labs in the area, and he found that no one could give him the amount that he needed. So he would have to make his own.
1: That was quite a challenge because I'm not not really a chemist. You know, I dabble on the kitchen table a bit, as it were, but I I didn't have access to, to proper laboratory conditions to do things properly.
0: Dr. Oxborough then had to make pentacene crystals by first mixing the pentacene with another molecule called peterphenyl. The substance is then placed in an oven at about 400 degrees Fahrenheit. But as Dr. Oxborough said, he wasn't dealing with state-of-the-art chemistry equipment.
1: So the actual making of the oven that we used to to grow the crystal, it wasn't like nuclear fusion or or anything of that scale. It was relatively... It was possible to do with a bit of care um, using um, just just, just scraps of material found in the lab. And I went down to the fabric shop actually to get myself some good insulation to wrap around the oven so that the, the, the outer layer of the oven that wasn't that warm and that kept it nice and cozy in the middle.
0: To keep the crystals from melting, they need to be removed from the oven very, very slowly at a rate of about one millimeter per hour.
1: And I did that with a little sort of like clockwork motor, which I kind of extracted from a clock. And um, it worked. A reasonably good uh, crystal of pita grew in the cell. And that was the piece that was used for the maser.
0: Is is your work as a physicist generally this do-it-yourself and home-cooked, or are you more often working with pre-prepared materials?
1: (laughs) Um, You do what you have to do to get the job done. In anything that's new, almost by definition, if you're doing something at the edge, you can't buy it at the drugstore. You can't, you can't even buy it from a specialist equipment supplier. In, in any new, truly new piece of physics or science in general, there's always some bit that you have to make yourself. And that's often the magical bit that, that is the core, the center of one's research.
0: And this was not even the end of Dr. Oxborough's build-it-from-scratch maser. Basically, every component was something that he and his colleagues had to find or forge themselves. A laser needs an energy source, which must also be unique to the medium that you are using. So for his energy source, Dr. Oxborough needed a yellow laser, which is a very uncommon type of laser.
1: Well, I think I did something um, very simple. I just put yellow and laser into Google you know, and hoped, as it were.
0: He eventually purchased an old medical laser that was operational but also cheap. He and his colleagues at NPL also had to build a metal cavity where the laser light, as it's coming out of the medium, reflects off the walls and is further amplified. Uh, In lasers, this is just done with mirrors, but of course these are microwaves, so they don't bounce exactly the same way. So they had to engineer this metal cavity specifically for those wavelengths. Dr. Oxborough stitched all these things together, he turned on the maser, and something happened that almost never happens in science. The device worked on the first try. And now we have an experimental demonstration of a room temperature maser. There are obviously many improvements to be made to the device, but the principle has been successfully demonstrated. We now know that this can be done.
1: So if, if we've done a service to the scientific community, it is to kind of um, open up people's eyes and tell them that with a modest amount of development and a modest investment, it should be possible to find um, molecular systems that are probably much better than pentacene and petophenyl that will do a much better job um, and you know, that, um, who knows where those applications might
0: lead. This product was a combination of material science and physics and chemistry and engineering and a physicist managed to patch all these things together into this working device.
1: As a physicist, I sometimes joke with people here and I say that I am somebody who knows almost nothing about almost everything in the sense that I'm not a specialist in any particular field, that I I dabble, I'm, I'm a a charlatan at, at almost everything. Um, and it was the ability to pick up fragments of, of, of wisdom in various areas that I think enabled us to sew it together to, to, to construct a, a device that actually worked. So there were various specialists who were very good at their particular in their particular silo, as it were, but one needed someone to combine um, very high... Um, very high quality resonators with the other parts with the material science areas of this of, of this device in order to get it to work. so I think we were good at we were good seamstresses. We were good at sewing the bits
0: together. That's all for the physics buzz podcast I'm Cala Cofield. As always, you can find more podcasts, our physics buzz blog, resources and so much more at physicscentral.com. Tune in next week for more physics buzz.